around the earth, but rotated around the sun. See, a gospel-centered life is a way of living our lives and seeing the world around us from the vantage point of a model in which God is at the center of everything. Everything in our world, everything in our sphere of influence, everything within our lives, from the inside out, finds its identity, its value, its significance, its meaning from God. It's the belief that we're created by God to enjoy him in a peace-filled relationship, right? To glorify him, to, to represent him, to reflect his image, to become like him in, in, in living like him and being like him in value and character. But here's the thing. Part of this God-centered, gospel-centered way of life is we recognize not only that we were created at the very core for this relationship with God, but that mankind rebelled against this model. We said, no, you know what? I think I prefer the geocentric model. I, I like when the world revolves around me, that I, I can have an influence over determining my direction. So mankind rebelled against God, this, this gospel-centered, God-centered model, and, and we call it sin. Right? We saw it first in Adam and Eve in the garden, but, but it goes way beyond that. We see the reality of this, the, the, this sin in our lives and in the world around us, and, and we understand that part of gospel-centered life recognizes that there's something wrong with this world, that this world is not the way it was supposed to be, but rather it's been influenced by this sin that's entered into the world. But here's the thing. The story doesn't end there. The gospel-centered life doesn't end there. The gospel-centered life continues on because God is a rescuer and redeemer. And he sent his son. Part of that gospel in life is believing that God is not satisfied to leave us in this separation from him because of our sin, but sent his son. We believe that he sent his son to come and redeem us, to reconcile us, to fix this relationship, to, to remove that thing that stands between us and God, namely sin. And he did it when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. But that's still not the fullness of the gospel in life because there's another chapter. There's, there's another part to the story. Because not only did God rescue us from sin, but a gospel in life also recognizes that Jesus invites us into a new way of being, a, a new life. That, that his rescue was not just from our past, but rescuing us to a future and not some distant future which we'll meet someday when we cross between this world and the next. But today, as day by day we live into this new way of being, this new way of, uh, of living life, of following Jesus. And so this is what it means to live a gospel-centered life, to, to recognize these realities and let them actually influence our world and our lives, the way we do things, the way we're becoming that they have a more influential sway on who we are than, than ourselves, right? I mean, it, it's, it's living that heliocentric model rather than the geocentric model. The problem is that many of us, we kind of enjoy living this, not just a geocentric model, a geocentric faith. Th this idea of Christianity where things revolve around us, that God wants to bless me, and that it ends well, impractical, nature, it ends there, right? That, that God wants, he loves me, he, he wants to serve me, he, he cares about what I think, right? But, and even our world, sorry, even our world encourages that, right? We, we, we live in a world that says, hey, you know, you could be the best you can be. But God says, no, I can make you something better. 
It's not about my needs. It's not about my wants. It's not about what I feel is good or right or what works best for me. I think we've got to challenge ourselves, as Paul is doing here, to put some skin in the game, to recognize that the game is a gospel-centered life. It's not, it's not just doing more for others or serving others or, or, or proclaiming what the Word of God says. It's living our lives in the Word of God, the gospel-centered life. It's putting skin in that game. See, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's not just saying, hey, you can be happy. He's encouraging believers to live into this new gospel-centered way of being, this Jesus-centered way, and, and to let your soul be filled with Jesus' joy as a result. He's saying don't pursue joy. Pursue Jesus and receive joy as a byproduct of that gospel-centered life. And so in the, the early per, part of our passage, Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Right? He encourages us to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I think for many of us that have had to deal with difficult circumstances, challenging times, grieving the loss of someone, wrestling with, with, with dreams or expectations that have been shattered, we find it hard to believe that we can rejoice in the Lord always. But the thing about rejoicing is that it's an outward action of an inward reality. Right? We're, as a people, we're pretty good at pretending, at faking things, of, of putting on a happy face. That You could show up in church on Sunday, be fighting all the way there to church, and then as soon as you pull into the parking lot and get out of your car, bing, the smile goes on your face, you walk in the door, and you pretend like nothing ever happened. Right? But the reality is, that's not joy. Joy is an, out, uh, an outward action of an inward reality. And the inward reality is not dependent upon ourselves building uh, something or creating a, a building of joy, but in following Jesus, living this gospel life and lives, and depending on him to bear the fruit in our lives that we long to have. He says, uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul wants the world around this Philippian church to see what Jesus is doing in those believers. He wants them to, to, to know their graciousness and gentleness. You might see, if you read this in different translations, that reasonableness could be translated in different ways as gentleness or, 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 or um, graciousness, right? It's this idea that, 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 that we, <laughs> we live in a, a gracious way of living and being. Oftentimes, I like to live in a black and white world. It's right or it's wrong, right? Good or bad. I feel safe in there. I'm the type of person where I like those boundaries. But the reality is that I don't have to be the author of right and wrong. I can live in this gentle way of being where I, I love that person, and I don't have to tell them that they're right or wrong. I can let my gentleness be known to all. Let the grace of Jesus work in their lives. I can depend on Jesus to do the work that he needs to do in that person's life. I don't need to do it for them. And so Paul is saying, live out your faith. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, don't forget that Paul is writing this letter from prison as Roman officials are trying to decide what they're going to do with him. 
right? They're trying to figure out, you know, should we, should we, should we just beat him? Should we kill him? What do we do with him? And so they've imprisoned him while he awaits further trial and, and, and determination as to what's going to happen to him. So he's in prison, and he's writing this statement, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, it's not exactly a, a place that I could imagine finding joy. And yet this is exactly what Paul has found. The type of rejoicing that Paul's talking about is this characteristic of faith in Jesus that's taken root in his life. It's a little like a scene out of uh, A Christmas Carol. I don't know if, I think it's the, the ghost of Christmas uh, present, I believe. <laughs> don't quote me on that. But there's this scene where the ghost brings Scrooge to the outside of this house. And, and, and Scrooge is standing in this cold, dark alleyway, looking in the window of this home that's lit up with warmth and a fireplace and the family gathering around a table, celebrating and enjoying Christmas together. Now, don't get too hung up on that picture I just painted, but, but think about it like this. This is a little bit what it's like. I mean, the reality of our outward lives and circumstances may be cold and dark and, and, and dreary, but inside, there is the promise that we can rejoice in the Lord always, that, that we can have this, the, the, the warmth and, and confidence and celebration of, of, of what God is doing in our lives through Jesus Christ this steady fire burning and this feast set at a table. I think this is what it means to be able to rejoice in the Lord always. What makes this rejoicing so different from the world's understanding of happiness is that it's a joy that isn't rooted in us. Right? Like I said, it's not something I can create or cultivate. It's not something I can just conjure up or, or, or kind of pull up my bootstraps and, and put on this great big smile. That smile will be fake if I try to do that. This is a joy that comes from a life lived with Jesus at the center of it all. With this gospel-centered life where we recognize that the Father has sent us a rescuer, a redeemer, because he loves us. He says, you're worth it. And not only has that rescuer, redeemer, redeemed us from the past, but he's invited us into this new life that we can follow him in. See, Paul puts it like this in Philippians 4, 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice where? In our circumstances? Rejoice in our successes? Rejoice in our accomplishments? No. Rejoice in the Lord. Let Let me just go off tangent a little bit here. Just a little bit. Today, this week, the upcoming weeks, there will be students graduating. There will be students graduating from college and heading into their career. There will be students graduating from high school, heading off to college in the fall or something else. There will be students moving from middle school to high school, from elementary school to middle school, from, <laughs> from preschool into kindergarten. There is a milestone that's happening here that you would typically expect to rejoice in. But that's been removed. The, the, the typical expectation of how you would rejoice in these milestones has been removed from you. But guess what? Paul encourages us. Rejoice in the Lord always. There is reason for you to be rejoicing right now. We are proud of what you have been working on, how you've been striving toward this goal. 
And if you think that walking across the stage and grabbing a piece of paper is the culmination of that goal, then you are sadly mistaken because the, the joy is far greater because God wants to develop a character in you that you may not even be aware of right now. And yet he is. And so we, we don't rejoice in our circumstances. We don't rejoice in our successes or our accomplishments. No, we rejoice in the Lord. Our joy is this gift that's planted in us through the nearness of the Lord. That God is with you, guiding you, strengthening you, transforming you, and shaping you, regardless of whether or not you get to celebrate with all your classmates. I understand. Let me just say this. I'm very sorry about that, too. You have reason to be sad and, and, and grieve that, but don't remain there. Because there is joy in recognizing that God's doing something phenomenal in your life. Now, if you want to picture what this means to, to, to have joy that's planted in us through the nearness of our Lord, anyone who has a cell phone could imagine this. You think about this, if, if you are near the cell phone tower and you're taking a call, man, that, that signal's clear. You don't have to worry about, about missing a, a call or a call cutting out or, or missing part of what someone's saying or, or maybe, better yet, talking on for five minutes realizing that the call dropped four minutes ago, right? But as you get further away from that cell phone tower, as the signal weakens, well, then calls do drop. Then, then parts of the conversations do get missed. Then sometimes you do get sent straight through to voicemail. The nearer you are to the Lord, the more familiar his words are in your ears and in your heart and in your mind, the greater clarity you have of the joy that comes to you in Jesus. If our focus is on not being able to cross the stage, rather than on the joy of of a God of all creation doing a work in you, shaping you and molding you and making you into something great, preparing you for something ahead of you, well, then we miss out on the joy that comes in the nearness of the Lord. Peter knew this concept pretty well in the Bible, I'd say. There's a passage where we're told of in the book of Matthew where, where Jesus and his, his disciples have been uh, out teaching and, and uh, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of them across the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that the, the night comes on and the, the disciples are struggling against the waves. The wind had picked up. They're, they're, the, the, the boat is actually uh, described as being battered by the waves. It wasn't a quiet night on the water. But then something miraculous happens. The disciples look out on the water and, and, and they see this figure coming toward them. And they're not sure who it is at first. But then they realize that it's Jesus. And Jesus calls out to Peter and says, Peter, come to me. Get out of the boat, Peter. Come walk on the water with me. Now, I can imagine that, that right now what might be going through his head is, hey, this is not an ideal evening for a stroll on top of the water. However, Jesus calls Peter out, and Peter gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water. And, and as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, as long as he's looking at Jesus, everything's fine. But then something happens. Because Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. It actually says that he, 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 he notices the wind, and he begins to, to sink down. When he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to pay closer attention to his circumstances, the waves and the wind, he begins to sink. So what changed here? The wind didn't stop. 
The waves didn't settle. The thing that changed was Peter's focus. His awareness of his nearness to the Lord. Peter took his eyes off of living a gospel-centered life and became more concerned with the circumstances surrounding him than drawing near to Jesus. In verse 30 and 30, uh, to 32 of, our, of Matthew 14, Matthew tells us this, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Just interesting side note, something to maybe look into later on. How do you see the wind? You see the effects of the wind, don't you? You see the waves that it creates. You, you feel the effects of it. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink and cried out to the Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But then get this. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When his life was focused on Jesus, he was good. But when he saw the wind, when he focused on the wind, when he was more concerned about the wind, he became afraid and began to, to sink. Question, and maybe this is something you can discuss on the discussion thread. What makes it hard for you to keep your life centered in Jesus? What, what, is, what, what challenges you to keep your focus on Jesus? What, what makes it difficult for you to keep your focus on Jesus when, when those circumstances are crying out to you? Is it worry? Worry over your future? Worry over your kid's future? Worry over money troubles? Is it fear? Fear about your health, about the health of a loved one? What would happen if we focus more on living this gospel-centered life, on, on thinking of our circumstances in relation to God at the center of our lives through Jesus Christ? What would happen to those circumstances that are rotating around us in our life as we rotate around a gospel-centered life? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, at this point, you're probably saying, hey, Dan, that sounds great to me, but how am I supposed to become this rejoicing person who keeps focus on Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm not going to tell you, but Paul will, right? I, I, I don't need to tell you because Paul has told us here in our passage, and he gives us what I think, what I've made into three Ps, right? Isn't that fun when we can do that, the little uh, memory tool? Three Ps, prayer, percolate, and praise. I'm sorry, not praise, practice. <laughs> My own tool backfired on me. Prayer, percolate, and practice. Three Ps. First, prayer. Look at Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing about Paul. I don't think that Paul is saying, hey, just go and tell God what you want and you're good, right? Because prayer for Paul was much bigger than just making a, a request to God. Prayer was a, a way of life for Paul. It, it was not just something that you would do uh, as part of your day. Paul wasn't a person who prayed. He was a prayerful person. There's a passage in Romans 11.36 where Paul talks about his relation to God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It's, it's a description of his life in orientation to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
It was a God-centered life. And prayer is, is integral to that. It, it was, it was the, the piece that, that kept him centered in Jesus. It was the thing that, that allowed him to not see prayer as something that you would go and do when you need something, but just part of his moment-by-moment way of living with God. That's why he could say that we should pray without ceasing. Not, not that we bow our heads and close our eyes and pray all times, even when we're driving down 95. It's because prayer is something that just uh, exudes from our inside out. It's not this moment where Paul is inviting us to just make our list of requests to God and then walk away satisfied that he's done the trick. Now, it's easy to read these words as if it's that, right? It's easy to read these words as if God is some sort of vending machine. I remember growing up when I would have swim lessons at the YMCA, I would come out of my classes and I was, I was oftentimes hungry, surprise, surprise, right, that, that I, would, I might be hungry. But, but my mom from time to time would give me some money and I could go to the vending machine and, and hit D5 and get my Pop-Tarts or, or B7 and get those Cheez-Its, the, the little package of Cheez-Its, and, and then walk away enjoying them as, as we drove home together, right? I don't think that that's what Paul is saying about how we should treat our relationship with God. Paul's not giving us a to-do here. He's describing an aspect of our relationship with God. See, if you look at the rest of Paul's writing, you'd see that his understanding of prayer is that it's a, a posture with which we live. For Paul, prayer described his relationship between the creator and his creation. It described uh, at the very core of who we are, the fact that we are adopted children of God and we're coming to our Father for everything that is good and right and and healthy and life-giving for us. It's that relationship that he's describing here in prayer. It, It reiterates that God is our sole source of everything. He's our protector. He's our comforter. He's he's our provider. He's our shepherd. He's our victor. Entire books have been written on Paul's understanding of prayer. I mean, there's much too much to say about how Paul views this idea of prayer here in our passage. But for us today, it's important to see that we don't use these words to the Philippians as becoming some mechanism to come to God. To, to just say, okay, God, uh, help me not get sick today. Right? I got that request, so I'm good. I can go do whatever. But it, it, it shapes our relationship with God. The prayer life that centers us in Jesus is the prayer life that brings us back to Jesus time and time again. It means we don't leave that time of prayer for Jesus for the half an hour in the morning where we go through our request, but it's that place we come back to time and time again throughout our day, coming back to the the one who provides our every need, who comforts us in our affliction, who leads us and guides us. It becomes more than just this, this moment where we, we, we speak words to God. It becomes a description of a lifestyle where we're reading the scriptures, where we're spending time in solitude with God, where, where, where we're, we're reflecting on what God has said in the word. It, it's the sort of thing where, where we allow the scriptures to, to guide and direct our everything. There's a, there's a person who I think emulates this well for us. We've, we've, we've been gathering at 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoons for a while now for a time of prayer, and 
Jesse Winter, uh, Winters, Clayton's wife, has been leading us in this time of prayer where, where we're very intentional to pray the scriptures. But I think what's, what's so uh, helpful to us is that Jesse is not teaching us a method. She's living this out. She lives out this, this model of praying the scriptures in a way that, that we too can, can live it out. And I think it's a great example, a place where we can be, where we can live after this model, not that we're following Jesse, but we're following Jesus, that we see at work in her as she's praying the scriptures, seeking him, uh, not because she thinks this is what we do, but it's because of what she longs to do in her relationship with Jesus. See, these practices of a prayer-filled life bring us back to Jesus time and time and time again, and they begin to give shape to what our relationship with Jesus looks like so that we can truly pray without ceasing. So rejoicing in the Lord and staying centered in Jesus is to cultivate this life of prayer, but it, but it also has to do with our thought life. It also has to do with the things that we percolate on, right? You think of uh, coffee percolating in one of those uh, older-style um, coffee makers where, where the, the water boils and, and bubbles and the coffee grinds uh, blend together. The, 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 the coffee begins to be made as that boiling water percolates within the coffee grounds. Right? Our thought life is like that. The things that we percolate have a way of making their way to the surface in our lives. Paul says in, in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, think, think about these things. See, I think our thought life has much to do with, with being centered in Jesus and living this joy-filled life. When we focus on things that cause us worry or fear, we're less likely to spend time focused on Jesus. When our minds are consumed by the, the worries of this world or the desires of this world or the, 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 the relationships of this world and we don't make any room for Jesus, well then guess what's going to shape our outlook on this world? That's an example of living the geocentric model or the heliocentric model, the me-centered faith or the Jesus-centered faith. See, when we're focused on these things that cause us worry, we become more like Peter sinking down into the waves. We have a harder time keeping focused on Jesus and understanding where he is taking us and what he is doing and how he provides and how he cares and how he protects us and how he loves us. So I think you've got to ask the question, what is it you're percolating on? Maybe there are some things, some ideas. You don't have to necessarily confess to everyone on the discussion thread, but what are the things that we percolate on that keep us from percolating on Jesus? Is it money? Is it our health? Work? Finances? Family? Sorry, I already said money, but I'll say it again because it's oftentimes very true for all of us. What about your future? I remember that was something I percolated on a lot when I was nearing the end of my college career. You know, sometimes when I, when, when I order something from Amazon, it, it has a strange way of taking my mind captive. I'm excited for that package to get here. So what do I do? I, I check the order tracking. I, I check to see how it's progressing. I see how far along it is. I, and and then not just once. I keep checking it as if it's miraculously or, or, or amazingly going to just magically show up on my front steps because I kept checking that order tracking. But think of the things that I can accomplish for Christ 
or, or not just accomplished for Christ, but think of the things that Jesus can do in me if that time was spent thinking on Jesus rather than on tracking an Amazon package. See, when our mind is consumed by many things that aren't Jesus, there's little room to think on Jesus. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says this. He says, be transformed, be changed, be uh, turned into new things by the renewing of your mind. He, he's saying, he doesn't say be transformed by behavioral therapy or, or be transformed by making more money. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? And not just the renewing of your mind into new ideas and, and new ways of doing it. He's talking about specifically renewing your mind in Jesus. Thinking the Jesus way. Becoming more like Jesus in our thought life. So that as we live out our lives, this Jesus-centered, gospel-centered life, we live more in the direction of the way that Jesus is going. In other words... Paul's saying, think more like Jesus and less like Dan. Or, or fill in your own name. Think more like Jesus and less than, or less like fill in your own name, right? Center your life in Jesus through prayer and percolating on Jesus. And finally, Paul tells us to, to practice what we've learned and believed. Look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 4. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me... Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, this last one is simple. This last one is easy. It's not do as I say, not as I do. It's practice what you preach, right? It's as simple as that. Let there be an integration and integrity between what you believe in here and how you live out there. Paul's circling back to the beginning of his letter in, in Philippians 1.27 where he tells them to, to let the manner of their public life, life reflect the truths of the gospel message. He said, don't just talk about love and grace and mercy and compassion. Live out that love and grace and mercy and compassion. That's easy for me to say. It's hard to do. And I think because it's hard to do, we give up on it. But our daily pursuit should be living the gospel-centered life. Right? Don't just talk about Jesus being your king. Live as if Jesus is your king. When Matthew records one of Jesus' sermons, he recounts a story that Jesus tells of, of these two builders who, who describe, uh, to describe what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Right? you got one builder who builds his house in the sand, one who builds his house on the rock foundation. He describes the, the, the builder who builds on the, sound, uh, the sand as being foolish, the builder who builds his house on the rock foundation as being wise. Well, in the story, what he likens the, the wise builder to is the builder who builds his life on Jesus' life and teachings. But, but that's not a guy who gets, sits back and says, yeah, I, I agree with that Jesus guy. No, he lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, thinks like Jesus, is driven in the same way that Jesus is driven, or I should say called in the same way that Jesus is called, to go and make more disciples of Jesus. The funny thing about that story is that, that both builders endured the same circumstances, right? Because we're Christians doesn't mean that we endure different circumstances than people who don't follow Jesus, the difference 
The difference is what's at the center of that person's life. Is it Jesus or is it me? And I think that's what we have to notice here, that a joyful life is available to us all in a life that's centered on Jesus. So this morning, could you use a little joy? Could you, could you use a little joy? I, I would encourage you, pay attention to Jesus today. Give him your attention, your mind. Spend time with him. There's a, there's a story in the uh, beginning of the Gospel of Mark where, where Jesus had been ministering to and healing and caring for people and preaching and teaching. And it was the end of the day, and he's, he steps away to a place of silence and solitude with his father. Coming out of that, the disciples are saying, hey, we've been looking for you. We, we want, there are people that are looking for you to heal them. And Jesus has clarity about what he is called to do because he has spent that time focused on his Father, removing those other distractions. See, joy for Paul, joy for Paul was this contentedness, this contentment in his relationship with Jesus. This past week, our Square One Men's Fellowship met on Zoom for an hour in the morning, and we just tried to connect with one another, encourage one another, pray with one another, uh, think through the fruits of the Spirit together, and we had this great time talking together. You know, as you imagine, as many of you are, it's hard to find a, a, a place of, of solitude in the house when everyone's quarantined together. And so, uh, though it was early in the morning, I had my headphones on so I wouldn't, uh, so that what the guys were saying wouldn't be heard by others in the house. And, and then at some point, my middle child came down and joined me uh, and sat next to me. And I was, I was nervous because I'm thinking, okay, uh, I can't just tell him to go. I tried to tell him to go away, actually, to be honest with you, but, but he refused to go away. And so then he just snuggled in. And I'm glad he did, by the way. So, Max, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. But here's the thing. I was nervous that the guys in the video would, would not be comfortable with Max being near me, even though I had my headphones on. I, I don't know why. But then the graciousness and the wisdom of these men of faith that I got to spend time with reminded me of something great. That the picture of Max resting with me, um, uh, with his head on my shoulder, is the picture that God invites us into in our relationship with him. To not focus on the waves or the wind, but to focus on Jesus. To rest contently with him, trusting that he is in control and he is leading us. This is that picture of faith that I'm so thankful for. I'm, I'm thankful for the picture of faith that these gentlemen reminded me of as Max rested on my shoulder. Listen to how Paul describes it for himself in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. It doesn't mean we can jump tall buildings. It doesn't mean we, we, we can lift cars off of people. It means that we can trust that it's Jesus who strengthens us. So whether we have much or little, he can do all things because he is our strength at the core of our lives. See, this morning, many of us find ourselves walking in some pretty rough waves, and we're not really sure how to stop that from happening. We're not sure how to stop from sinking because all we see are these waves that are overwhelming us and the wind that's tearing around us. 
You know, this morning, it's time to put some skin in the game of a gospel-centered life. Like Peter, look up at Jesus, who invites you to take his hand, to get in the boat and let him, let him calm the seas. Not you. Let him do it. Look up at Jesus. Center your life on him through prayer, being transformed in the renewing of your mind as you percolate on his goodness and his promises and choosing not to focus on what worries you, and then put it all together in practice. Put some skin in the game of the gospel. Because together with Jesus, we can be joyful today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that you invite us to live this life of dependence on your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have sent him. Thank you, thank you that you created us and desire for us to share in this rich personal relationship with you. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive us for the sins that we have committed, the ways that we have desired to live more of a me-centered life than a God-centered life. And Lord, thank you, though, that that was not the end of the story, but that you rescued and redeemed us through your Son. And then you invite us to live into this new way with Jesus, a way that we can truly be joyful. Do that work in us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit transform us into this new way of being, this new way of living in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So something came to me new in, in the hearing. To, to center our lives in him, to let that inform and shape who we are and who we're becoming and how we live among our communities, our families, uh, our workplaces, what a gift it is that Jesus invites us into this new way. And, and, and this new way of being, of living, of thinking, of pursuing Jesus, is the very thing we celebrate when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and pull out your, your bread and, and juice, your water, whatever it is, and, and gather around this table. A, a table, I remind you, was... Uh, something that Jesus gathered around with his disciples uh, on the night that he was to be betrayed. And he desired to share this meal with them, the Passover meal, but, but he desired to pass on to them something even greater, uh, something for them to celebrate in the days to come, something to encourage them when they had to deal with some discouraging moments, some frightful or fearful or worrisome moments. Right? We're, we're even told in, in John, the book of John, Jesus shares this, this final discourse with his disciples that's recorded from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17. It's this lengthy passing on of, of, his, of this charge, of his last words. And even so, some that the disciples didn't really understand in the moment, one of which was his institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, something that was meant to be a time of jubilee and celebration. Why? Because he was doing a new thing. Prophet Isaiah records for us these words of God where he says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Right? This new thing is this new covenant which Jesus establishes with his disciples through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his invitation for us to join him into this new life, this new way of being. And so this morning, we have reason for celebration. We have reason to celebrate because Jesus is doing a new thing. We're told in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We celebrate the fact that the former things have passed away. Even as we look forward to that future hope in Jesus' return, we celebrate that he's already victorious. That there is a day coming when there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more sadness. But we celebrate this moment where Jesus, and recognize this moment where Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. We're told that when he gathered with his disciples, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father. He said, this, bo- this bread is my body which is broken for you. And then he told his disciples to take the bread, whenever they eat of it, to, to do so in remembrance of what Jesus has done for them. And so we do that now. We eat of this bread in remembrance of Jesus' death. And, and remembrance of what that death means. It means a day when there will be no more sickness or sadness or tears. Purely celebration. And so we take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper. And, and he gave thanks for it. He said, this cup... It is a symbol of the new covenant. It's the new covenant given in my shed blood. It's this new way of being. It's this new life. It's the, it's the, the, the life of following Jesus being transformed in your thinking and your being and your living as Jesus. And so this cup was a cup that he lifted up and he said, whenever you drink of it, drink of it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have a way of being that you invite us into. A a life where Jesus is king. A life where we know that, that there will be a day when there will be no more sickness or sadness or tears. Why? Because you are doing a new thing. You are reconciling this world to you. And what that means is the former things will have passed away. My old self, my old way of being is gone, is dead, and my new self is alive in Christ Jesus. And so today, Lord, we determine in remembering what you have done on our behalf and the way you created this new life for us, that we will live into this new life where we will keep Jesus at the center of it all, this gospel-centered life where we will believe that there is a creator who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us. And though we have sinned and rejected him, he has sent his son to to, to draw us back into relationship with with him, to make a way for us to be with him, and not just to forgive us of the past, but to to make a new way, a new life for us to live into as we follow Jesus, with Jesus as our King. And so, Lord, we give you thanks, and we give you praise, and we celebrate you today, together, as we're united in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a joy... And a pleasure to worship this morning with you, to be recharged and be refreshed in God's word. And I hope you were as you prepare to go out into the rest of your day and celebrate the moms in your midst. I want to let you know, just as a way of announcement, that today we will not be gathering at 2 p.m. for the prayer gathering because we are going to allow those moms to celebrate and be celebrated 
And so I hope you'll take advantage of that uh, time to, to love on the moms in your life. I also want to let you know, not just that we are celebrating our moms, but we're celebrating something else. I personally am so, so excited to see your generosity and the ways that you're serving. We had a, a, a bin outside of the, the door that was filled to overflowing with cl- clothes and resources for the family that lost everything in a fire in Bridgeport. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your way of thinking, how can I serve and care for others? Thank you to the women's ministry who's made a way to serve our community here in Fairfield. The women of our church have come together to craft uh, masks for uh, elderly homebound seniors in our our community here in Fairfield that are going to be dispersed throughout uh, the the Fairfield in the coming weeks. And so we want to say thank you to the women's ministry who who did this, who put this together, and who's allowing us to let our community, our town, know that we care and we want to be a good influence uh, in, in helping out with that. And so, as you'll see, those masks were sewn by the women and then delivered to uh, the Bigelow uh, Senior Center here in town. And so, uh, very thankful for them and, and, and their effort. So, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your, your creativity and trying to find ways to serve in this time. And again, we want to thank you for your continued generosity in giving toward the gospel here at Trinity. We want to encourage you that there are four ways you can continue to give toward the gospel work here at Trinity, whether it's online, going on our website. You can go and give through the app. There's still a texting ability. You can text, and you'll receive a text back that will kind of walk you through the steps of, of giving your tithe in a secure way. And then also, you can still mail your checks in. We still have people who are collecting the mail and counting. Uh, and so, please consider how God is putting on your heart. I know that there are many of us who want to give, but because of our circumstances are not able to give. And I want you to not feel any guilt or shame because we need to remember that God loves a cheerful giver. So let's give generously as we feel God has put on our heart to give toward the work of the gospel here at Trinity. Again, thank you all for joining with us this morning. I want to just close our time with this benediction. Send you with this blessing that God gave to Moses to give to Aaron to give to the people of Israel. It says this, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Happy Mother's Day, everyone.